0: The book club are back to brainwash us with the next chapter, and we're scaling the eight mountains to execute Plan 75. I'm Van Conner.
1: And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Offscreen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Hello and welcome back. So uh, we've got four brand new movies to talk about this week that Van Connor has already seen. I know nothing. I've seen nothing. (laughs) So basically, this is me interviewing Van to find out what he thought of the movies. It's It's not. We are now.
0: We're we're, we're an interview show now. Is that what this is? It's
1: kind of how it works, really. Me asking you lots of ridiculous questions about the movies that you have seen. so, with the first one, then we are heading to the Italian Alps with eight mountains.
0: Yes, Le Otto Montagne, as it is in its mother tongue, according to IMDb. Because obviously, I don't speak Italian; I'm, I'm not that cultured. Um, this is a subtitled film straight off the bat, Mister Ball. So, I'm, I'm sorry. Start clenching. It's subtitled. Uh, you know <laughs> I me. Mean? I'm, I'm, I'm subs. I'm subs, not dubs. You're the other way, sir. Um, you can tell we just had a conversation about the raid five minutes ago. Yep. Uh, so. New movie, and uh, this is the new movie, directed by uh, Felix van Groningen, whose name I did not know offhand, and Charlotte van Der Now, Felix van Groningen, it was the director, it turns out, the writer-director of Beautiful Boy back in 2018. The Oscar-bait, Steve Carell, Timothy Chalamet drug addiction drama that fell so so flat honestly you could have wrung the thing out it was so soggy and damp it was uh, it was quite a time this way better movie straight off the bat I'm not gonna bury the lead this is a way better movie than beautiful boy okay so the the, the, the pedigree of, of Oscar Bates is 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 gone he's now made natural movie as co-director, it seems, as well. Now, he's uh, based on uh, Paolo Cognetti's novel. It's been adapted for the screen by uh, Von Grodeggen and, uh, uh, I want to say, Vandemisch as well. And it centers around... It starts in the past, centers around two young boys. So we have got Pietro and Bruno. They start out as young boys, I think about, like, 10 or 12 years old. They meet in a remote community in the Italian mountains. I think it's Bruno has come from the city, is visiting family they are the only two kids of comparable age in the small village. They, they bond for a time, and then they're separated, you know, for many years. They reunite years and years later as adults when I think it's then... I might be getting the two boys' names the other way the wrong way around so forgive me if that's the case if you've seen this and you're yelling at your uh, your iphone at me I, I apologize in advance but bear with me so um when they reunite they reunite because pietro's father has passed now pietro's father was something of a hard ass and didn't quite get him but he did have something of a bond briefly in the past with bruno the two reunite with the idea of going back to the remote remote town in the mountains and building a sort of a getaway cabin slash locale for themselves. And whilst they are doing this, the story starts to come to light that when Bruno went back to the city, that wasn't the end of his relationship with both the town and Pietro's father. And the story of the burgeoning surrogate father-son relationship that developed between the two starts to cause not so much a rift between them, but bring bitterness and jealousy and serious questions of of already you know sort of laboured self-worth back to the forefront of of Pietro's will. And he sets out on a journey to to go and scale eight mountains in Nepal, for instance, as he tries to process and deal with this and also his friendship with Bruno and the and, and the connection that they are forming yet again in their adult years. Um I, I think you could probably get away reductively. We're calling this straight back mountain because it's basically broke back mountain without the sex it's got the, it's got the same emotional love <laughs> you know what I mean like these two guys are broing out there is a deep emotional intimacy between these two men. But it's you know it's not of a romantic or sexual nature, for instance, in, in the same way as like Brokeback Mountain. So Straight Back Mountain, pretty good term. So uh, Luca Marinelli and Alessandro Boyi are uh, the adult Pietro and Bruno, respectively, I believe. And wow, great performances, just absolutely wonderful performances. But this is this is one that's a combination of really great writing, when you get character writing, actually, this really gets under the skin there's no psychological stone left unturned um, it dealt just every- it delves into every facet of the lives of these two men that has been affected by this story and that's everything you know it's, it's one of those things your relationship with your father for instance you know it determines so much of your life and who you are as I'm sure you can say yourself and how yep. this seeps in, how this seeps into every facet in of their words. and they play it beautifully. But as I say, it's a combination of great writing for that, great performances that get that, and really lavish scenery, cinematography, the aesthetic of it. It has. I think, to be honest, we watched a film recently. What was the movie we reviewed about... We reviewed a movie about a preacher going to... A Danish priest going to Iceland, I think it was, quite recently, to build a church. And we talked about how they wonderfully use the environment and use the location to sell the desolation of this. This is kind of the other way. This is not really about the desolation. This is kind of about the solitude. It is about... This sort of picturesque landscape, that in which you know they are the, the two pinprick figures in the centre of this vast, you know, wide open terrain, and it's genuinely beautiful stuff. Like a really a moving film, quite say really moving, really gorgeous film with wonderful performances. I'm um, going to keep from back to the pad. I'm sorry, I'm terrible with uh, with Italian names. Uh, Marinelli, in particular. I think because it's easy I think to read this as as his story. I think he is great in this. Marinelli in particular I think is great. But um, Alessandro Borghi as Bruno I do think gets the harder role. Because obviously he's kind of the fortunate one out of the two. And that's I think a bit more difficult. It's easy it's easier to play victimized, I think, than it is to play kind of not successful but you know what i mean more fortunate more blessed as it were and i think he has a more difficult time and yet the performances are both uniformly brilliant absolutely brilliant performances. i don't even speak italian i was sucked into the drama of this but it is i think there's there's serious directorial heft in there and especially after having sat through beautiful boy a few years ago which was a terrible movie was really. I still got the Oscar screener on the shelf in my. Can I, the only like DVDs <laughs> I keep in the house now are the are the Oscar screeners, and uh, it, it, it's. I'll never revisit it. I'm never going to open. It. I'm. I'm. I'm reticent to even keep the thing. I hated the movie so much. Uh, to be really Charlie awful in it, but I think this is very much a, 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 an apology for that in a sense. Tate, um, all about that screenplay. All about those performances. There is. Um, just great cinematography by uh, Ruben Impens, I think it is. I think it's Ruben Impens as the cinematography on this. I'm trying to look up who the composer was. Oh, ah, Daniel Norgren. Daniel Norgren is on the, the score for this, and that I thought worked quite well as well. I think the film is going to struggle with mainstream audiences naturally enough. It's a subtitled, you know, character-based drama. This is not going to do. This is not going to go gangbusters at a cine world on a Friday night at 10 p.m. You know what I mean? But on the other hand, show this in occurs on. You know, like one o'clock on a, on a Saturday afternoon, and you're, you're going to see you're going to see those crowds turn up for this. And I, I don't think they're going to leave disappointed. I think this is one I could see this turning up in contention uh, for uh, best international feature for Italy next year. I would, I would hazard a guess that this has probably already been submitted, and that information is probably buried in the production notes that I didn't read for this so but i would bet folding money this is at the very least been submitted for italy's you know best international feature nomination for next year in which case absolutely understandable. i think it's a cracking film it's called the eight mountains or Otto uh it is in cinemas from today it's going to be in your art house cinemas i don't think necessarily you're going to find this in like branches of Odeon. i almost said or uci for a second the uci doesn't exist anymore does it no doesn't does it there's no ucis yeah, so. anymore no, yeah, not a not I know in, no, not been UCI No, not really a UCI since the nineties. last time I saw a UCI. I think <laughs> Waterworld was in cinemas, but uh, and I say that I literally <laughs> saw Waterworld in a UCI Crystal Peak, Sheffield. Yo, alive. Um, so the Eight Mountains Unlimited from today, uh, I I give it my two thumbs up. I think it's an excellent movie. I don't think it's gonna be everyone's cup of tea, but to be fair, I think for those who it is, I think you're gonna walk away very very happy with this. It's a cracking effort.
1: There you go. Make your own mind up. If you want to go and see it, it is in cinemas, as Van said, from today. All right, we're back in a moment. I'm really looking forward to Van reviewing this because, t- to me, on paper, this is my kind of movie. We're going to talk about Plan 75 in just a second. Stay right where you are. Hello and welcome back. So uh, let's talk about another new movie that is out in cinemas from today. Brainwashed Sect, Camera Power. I mean, as a title, I'm in.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Um, I think just colloquially referred to as, uh, as brainwashed colon subtitle sex dash camera dash power. Uh, I had the chance to watch this at the LFF last year, and uh, then I missed out. Uh, Because I think, as happens with me in the LFF, week of release screenings tend to clash with the movies you really want to see, and I was really up for this. So, the premise here: this is a documentary. It is based on a effectively a TED Talk type setup, which we actually do get cutaway footage of uh, from is it Nina Menke? I think we'll check this one out. Uh, I think it's Nina Menke, and he's about. the Nina Menkes, sorry. Nina Menkes is about the relationship between cinema and female exploitation. It's about the male gaze and how cinema has been constructed since its infancy to literally promote the male gaze above all costs. And what effect this has had over the 100-plus years of cinema now. And we actually see this demonstrated through the use of, and this is how it's stated, A-list films. So we're talking about like modern, contemporary, big movies and how they prioritize the male gaze above all else, how that impacts both cinema as a medium and society, as well as just audiences, and what should be done to correct this. And more importantly, above all else, how this is presented to us through, of all things, literally the medium of shot composition in cinemas, how a single frame, how things are staged and filmed, and how this has been constructed and designed since time immemorial in cinema, entirely to serve and prioritize the male gaze. I will listen to this clip. The male gaze is
1: definitely normalized in our society.
0: Almost all of us are familiar with the phrase, the objectification of women. What exactly is an object and what is a subject? It's the stuff that I think you thought, and maybe I thought, well, everybody knows this, it's in the ether. And so to name it and to show it is something that I believe can change the world. I personally see a very clear connection between this visual language of cinema, employment discrimination
1: against women. It's a visual medium, Kayla. And an environment of pervasive sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. I find this kind of thing fascinating, actually, and and really important because, I mean, going on what you kind of said a moment ago, really, it would make sense that cinema has almost changed how people think and, and almost, I guess, caused it in some senses because it's cinema sometimes reflects real life and real life sometimes reflects cinema, doesn't it? When it's hmm. when it's gone on long enough.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, me. I have this fundamental philosophy that I do think movies are the primary narrative storytelling device of the human race. Like 20th and 21st century human beings, I do believe, hold cinema, as the primary mode of narrative storytelling. So obviously that has an effect on our development, on our sociology, how we interact with one another. And you, you know, we, it, on a macro level, you kind of see this with uh, you know, how we, how we have become a meme culture, how we quote films, how we, how we refer to soundtrack beats. I mean, this week, I mean, just go on TikTok this week and 90% of it is Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And it's the same couple of clips, but always with everyone chiming in their own commentary and things on animal cruelty and empathy and stuff like that. Uh, has, been, uh, has been a wonderful thing to sort of witness that by the way. But conversely to that, you look at the sort of the, the next level beyond that, a bit more deeply rooted, and how a lot of our fundamental programming that's instilled in us from you know, infancy, when we're introduced as children to films, like even animated films, like for children. And the fun the fundamental sexism that is inherently baked in. Now Menkez's film does go to does go to the extent of actually demonstrating that look, you can have, you know, all the filmmakers in the world for a hundred years. The fact of the matter is just always going to be that only an just a, a pathetically small amount are women. And that's that's before you even get to the diversity question. Like a very, very tiny fraction. And even things like the the use of music to promote certain Let's just say mindset has been put forward by largely male composers, and the film makes some incredibly fascinating points. The one that hit me the most, I think, is literally the way in which we are presented with nudity. Now, putting aside the obvious one that we all know, which we, we've all said in pubs since, you know, again, time memorial, that you know it, it's interesting that we will show all the female nudity in the world, but you, you know, you'll you'll never see a guy drop trowel. You know, that kind of a thing. Just look at a Fifty Shades of Grey movie and, and notice the disparity. It's, it's the Game of Thrones problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, every actress in Game of Thrones has to get a kit off, but every dude stays conveniently covered for the most part. And Game of Thrones is probably the wrong example to use there, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, <laughs> there's there, there, there a, there a fair amount of schlong in GOT, if we're being honest. Um, yeah. I was about but, to but, say
1: there are some schlongs,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. But the way that, it, that nudity is framed and shown and we are, we're given practical examples of this from contemporary movies, from modern films, from movies that star people like Ryan Gosling. And people like, we're talking about modern, A list, top tier films, Academy Award winning films, films that one can. You know, you get shown blue is the warmest color, and there's talk, you know, there's, there's discussion about look, how things have had to change, how we've had to introduce intimacy coordinates, and things like that. But I can't get past this idea that when female nudity is presented on screen, and we have demonstrated this cameras linger they don't show faces they show close-ups that have no real function there's no real art to them it's just the male gaze and then conversely and we're shown this actually through a clip from crazy rich asians in which we're shown yes but then when you get male nudity notice how henry golding is there with his kit off but he's fully in frame his entire body is in the frame his face is there you can see his face you can see his knees you know, I mean, you get the whole body. If you know his female counterpart, however, you're just getting the ass. You know, I mean, it's just an ass shot, and that's and then the camera may slowly pan, and that kind of disparity, I think, is more disheartening to have simply laid out in front of you than a billion yeah. straight-up verbal conversations. I mean, me telling you this now is going to have so much less effect than you literally being presented with that visual example. Which is, and you know, I I put this on myself because obviously male privilege. You know what I mean? Like we both have that. I mean, we're obviously the worst two people in the world to talk about, you know, you know, the, the female mistreatment at the hands of the male gays because it's we have that privilege. But this is a film that mm. will absolutely enrage you by actually forcing you right in front of it and saying, "Look, here it is, Avaganda. This is what you're in for." And I say some of the examples used are fast bombshell do you remember Bombshell from 20 we reviewed that together on the BBC I think yeah Uh, Bombshell was the 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 Time's Up uh, Fox News story with Megyn Kelly and, and that's you could actually hear John Lithgow from that movie in the clip and the reading of that for instance is quite intriguing there are films that you would think would be considered quite progressive that actually aren't when they're you know held up to the cold light of day and yes before anyone asks of course adrian lynn's disastrous remake of lolita from 1997 has to appear in this movie of course it does because you couldn't have a movie about problematic elements of society without having jeremy irons turn up for it because he's jeremy irons what are you gonna do
1: I mean, it's it's fascinating just sitting here mm. listening to you talk about it really has fascinated me. And, and like you say, you know, it's, it's having it shoved in your face really hits mm. home, actually, what you've known all along. But actually, it just points it out to you. I think even from having this conversation now, every mm. movie I watch, I'm going to be thinking, oh, actually, that's that point the fan was talking about. Yeah, you're right.
0: I would genuinely, I would I would wholeheartedly recommend this. I mean, I'd recommend this to everyone full stop because I think it's a, a, a wonderful documentary anyway, but I think it has serious yeah. sociological importance. And I do think, and I think, I think aspiring filmmakers should watch this as just part of the course. This should be one of those things you do first week on a film course. You buy a copy of Robert McKee's story that you half read and then never pick up again, and you watch this film. Those should be the two things you do first week of any film course from now on half read Robert McKee's story pretend that he's Brian Cox and then watch this movie Brainwash Sex Camera Power the list of people that show up for this is fascinating as well in and of itself so Catherine Hardwick uh, director of the the first Twilight movie 13 which doesn't get brought up in here but would have been quite an interesting one to have uh, seen discussed Um, I was shocked actually that they didn't get Emerald Fennell in there, who directed uh, directed, uh, Promising Young Woman. But they do, however, get um, uh, Eliza Hitman. Eliza Hitman who did Never Rarely Sometimes Always. And, and this is my, uh, my absolute favorite one, uh, Maria Geis. Maria Geis shows up here. Maria Geis has made a fair few films over the years. But for the purposes of this film, is literally credited, and I love this to death because I can't figure out how they settled on this, is credited. As the director of the forgotten 1996 Sean Bean Sheffield United underdog story, when Saturday comes, that is an actual <laughs> thing in a documentary in 2023. Right, there are only two people alive who remember the forgotten 1996 Sean Bean Sheffield United underdog drama when Saturday comes. Myself and my best get friend, one of them. Yeah, myself and my best <laughs> mate, are the only two people alive, and that's only because we were desperate to go and see it when we were when we were thirteen. Um, I say, brain, brainwashed sex camera power. I, I, clearly, I did miss out when he was at the LFF. I say I wanted to see it, didn't get the opportunity. I do see this. Um, it's in cinemas from today. It's, be, it's being distributed by the BFI, so it will be available to, I think, purchase and watch on the BFI player shortly, but I don't have a definitive date on that. I've tried to find a definitive that There isn't seem to be one, but they're usually quite quick with it. But if you are in the market for a solid documentary that's going to stir some feelings in you, definitely check this out this is unmissable stuff
1: amazing all right well you can make your own mind up um we are moving on we are back to italy with jane fonda in a moment we're going to talk about book club next chapter stay right where you are
0: and now it's time for a segment we like to call. Off screen pays the bills. Hey, Adam. Hey, Fad. What's going on? Ain't hey, nothing going on but the rent. You know how it is. And so we're delighted to thank our sponsors for this week at Shelter, the architecture channel. If, like me, you're sick of the age-old reality TV type of architecture content out there, Shelter's absolutely where you need to be. It's the only channel in the world offering up high-quality, authentic programming on architecture, urban planning, and the built environment, with award-winning films, exclusive originals, and a curated library that features full-blown star architects like Zara Hadid and Harry Sadler. So get inspired. Go check out Shelter at shelter.stream or via their apps on all major platforms. And whilst you're doing that, feel even better because you're doing something for the environment too, with Shelter planting a tree for every subscriber every month. So huge thanks again to our sponsors at Shelter, the architecture channel. This episode is also sponsored by the good folks at NordVPN. Get yourself some industry-leading online security today with more than 5,000 servers in 60 countries. Want to protect your privacy online? NordVPN. Going on holiday and don't want to miss EastEnders on iPlayer? Boom! NordVPN. I've been using NordVPN for a while now. My MacBook, my iPad phone. Hell, I've even set it up on my home router so I can watch Stargate on Netflix from the US. Oh, yes, you can access other countries' versions of your favorite streaming platforms, and it's not even difficult to use literally just a single click and if that's too much effort there's an auto connect function too fully encrypted no bandwidth throttling go check out nordvpn right now or you know finish this episode first but head on over to nordvpn.com/offscreen and try them out for yourselves risk free with nord's 30 day money back guarantee that's nordvpn.com/offscreen and now back to the show
1: Hello and welcome back to Off Screen. We've have two movies left to talk about. We're going to talk about Plan Seventy Five in a moment. Cannot wait to see this movie. Uh, but we're going to start now. Back to Italy, Jane Fonda, Book Club, Next Chapter. So talk to me, Van. What was this all about?
0: I'm just going to confess, by the way, that when we uh, stopped recording that block, I literally and you queued us up for the Book Club uh, sequel. I literally thought that you said Book Club with Jane Fonda. My response, as soon as we stopped recording that block, was to say. Whose breasts do in fact appear in this documentary? Um, true story, because obviously, Barbarella <laughs> has to. Barbarella has to at least be mentioned in the conversation yeah. of problematic depictions of women in cinema. Um, and of course, Jane, F- Jane Fonda is uh, one quarter of the book club. Did you see the first book club movie, Mister Ball?
1: I think I saw half of it. This is my problem. Right. I put movies I... On too late and fall asleep.
0: I do that all the time. I do all the, This is why I only watch TV in bed. I only watch TV shows in bed. I never watch movies now. <clears throat> because I can fall asleep during TV Good show. Good idea. To get it. Yeah, it's my only... I do, and it's usually only a show I've seen before. It's like at the moment I have Ted Lasso on when I'm going to bed every morning. Um, so, Book Club 2018 was effectively an elder lady sex comedy. In which a group of four friends, uh, played by Jane Fonda, uh, Mary Steenburgen, Diane Keaton, and Candice Bergen, got the Oscar nomination slash wins between that quartet um get together for a book club and in the in the first one they read uh 50 shades of gray and reading it inspired them to sort of reignite their own sexual passions their long dormant sexual passions i say long dormant except for jane fonda because she's just playing jane fonda which means she has the greatest libido of any human being alive we've now got the sequel we've now got a sequel which takes place five years later and literally opens with Here's what you know previously on the book club to fill in the missing years. So obviously the four ladies have gone through the pandemic. They have been separated for that amount of time. They have kept the book club going through via Zoom well, I think it's actually Skype within the context of the uh, of the of what we're actually shown, but they tell us it's Zoom. And uh, at the stage where they are now reunited, when sort of when normality is restored, I don't want to say the pandemic is over, but at the point the pandemic "quote unquote" is over, they are reunited. They're reading their latest book, *The Alchemist*, and it's at this point that Jane Fonda's character reveals. She has gotten engaged to that handsome Don Johnson fellow from the first movie, who managed to woo the unwooable Miss Fonda. And uh, for their uh, bachelorette party, they are going to revive a l- well—not so much revive a long-dormant idea, so much as fulfill a long-neglected promise that they made to themselves in their youth that they would go on a girls' holiday to Italy, to Tuscany. So they decide this is going to be Fonda's bachelorette party. They are off to Italy. And so faster than you can say Sex in the City 2, we're bored in Lufthansa. Have a listen. This needed to happen. It did. It did. This is the universe hitting the eject button on me and Arthur once and uh, for all. Best friends, tough love. Stop giving the universe and fate credit for everything. You're making a choice, What? We're on this trip, not because of fate, but because we're best friends for 50 years. We show up for each other. Fate didn't bring us on this trip. Our love for each other did. Love and the wonderful people at Lufthansa. It was a nice flight. Bit of product placement there.
1: (laughs) Yes, I was just going to say that. I mean, that that sounds very heartfelt and meaningful. Is there any comedy in this, because Jane Fonda does comedy so well.
0: Genuinely thought you were going to say nudity then. Uh, Right, no, comedy. Of course there's comedy. There's bags (laughs) of comedy. (laughs) There's there's bags of nudity, actually, (laughs) to be honest. But that's sort of of, uh, PG-13, you know, kind of nicely disguised nudity. Um, Right, first of all, I really love the first one. And I enjoyed the second, but it's in no way, it it doesn't hold a candle to that first one. First of all, it neglects one very key element of the first movie. The first movie was contingent on the book element. They had the inciting incident of the Fifty Shades of Grey thing. The actual book element of the second installment of the book club, The Alchemist, is so offhand that I think when we were coming out of this... Was it, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine, Joyce Glasser, who's a, 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 a critic for the Mature Times. I think it's Mature Times. Uh, so she tends to review films to older audiences. And I asked her about the book club. Did you see the book club? She said, oh, I didn't like it. I'm like, why? Should we? Well, they didn't even do the book thing this time around. Like, they, they did. They were doing The Alchemist. And it's done so offhandedly that you can very easily watch this entire movie whilst paying attention and just not notice the book element because it just it's kind of not really a thing. It also just doesn't seem as well thought out as, as the first movie was. The first movie had, I think, a lot more heart. This feels a lot more phoned in. This definitely feels like a look. We had a pandemic. The first movie was successful. Let We need to make something. Let's write something while we're all kind of you know, locked away in our homes. It has that feel of a sort of incarceration project. You know, like we all had during during lockdown. We all had our incarceration projects. You feel like this was someone's. Um doesn't have. It's worth noting as well, they actually undo one of the... Not so much undo, but redo one of the characters' storylines from the previous movie, which is one of those annoying things they do with sequels. I always call it the Tony Stark-Captain Kirk problem, where when you get to part two, the, they feel a need to undo all the character growth of the first one. Tony Stark goes back to being a selfish narcissist for no reason in Iron Man 2. Captain Kirk goes back to being you know, headstrong and stubborn and impulsive, despite the fact that we resolved that in part one. And we've done that again specifically with Mary Steenburgen's character. Like, there seems to be a whole thing about her relationship with her husband that got resolved in the first movie that seems to get undone here. And that's not to take away from the the obvious affection that's there. And if you are a really big fan of the first movie, which, generally speaking, someone like my mother is a big fan of the, my mother laughed like a gibbon through the first. Just chuckled away, because it's exactly my mum's kind of middle-of-the-road raunch humour. Mm. Like my mum's middle-of-the-road yeah. version of raunch humour. That's, that's the book club to a T. And I think she would enjoy the sequel, but not as much, which is kind of how I fall on it. It just feels a lot like an Ocean's 12, a sort of the cast are having more fun than the audience is. I think it'll make the money, because it's got that brand loyalty there, and it's got the idyllic italian scenery and things like that. And before anyone asks, yes, it is an infinitely better sequel. It's an infinitely better let's go on holiday girls sequel than for instance Sex and the City 2 was because for one thing, this takes 14 minutes for them to go on holiday. Sex and the City 2 took a sodding hour. Of a oh. 2 and a bit hour movie. Right? Batman began in an hour and 10 minutes and he had to be trained by ninjas. Come on. You know what I mean? <laughs> one of them things.
1: Yeah, you want to get straight to it and get straight to the crux of the yeah, storyline, like really. 14 really minutes, around. Yeah, 14
0: minutes. Yeah, 14 minutes. Nice considerable amount of time. It's one of those movies as well that you can watch and you can piece together every plot development. You know, as soon as someone mentions this, you're like, that's a Chekhov's gun that's going to come up later. You know, someone's getting shot with that Chekhov's gun down the line. As soon as this character makes this gun, you know that there's going to be a moment at the end of the movie when that has to pay off. It's definitely one of those. But like I say, this is not written with the intention of being a Christopher Nolan movie. It's written for my mom. So... You know, arguably it's kind of successful in its its ambitions, I would say. Like Diane Keaton's, you know, there being all, you know, lady boss about it with the, the classic linen pantsuits and the weird tuxedo-collared blouses that she wears. She's, you know, there's no rival to Diane Keaton. She is the queen forevermore. Uh, Candace Bergen, who at one point turns up to a party in this movie looking strangely like Brian May from Queen. I can't figure that one out. But, you know, does get to have some fun nice to nice to see her letting her hair down or at least blown out as it were in this case and then you get of course to miss fonda all hail jane fonda who like i say at this point has a career entirely built upon simply showing up and playing jane fonda for the second time in two months because we reviewed 80 for brady together recently which jane fonda turned up to play jane fonda in exactly the same damn way and it was great It, it I, I'm never tired of seeing Jane Fonda. I, I, there's something about the presence of Jane Fonda that you find kind of reassuring. She's kind of like a female Bruce Campbell in that way. Or well, Bruce Campbell is the male Jane Fonda. I mean, we're saying, but there is something of that just magnetic personality, that absolute presence, and she's got it in spades. However, I'm just going to point out that Mary Steenburgen remains an absolute treasure of a human being and I would like her forevermore to be in all the movies. Also, i like to imagine just for a second that the characters played by her and her on-screen husband here, uh, uh, Cratey Nelson from Coach, because they played Ryan Reynolds' parents in The Proposal in 2009, I just like to imagine they're the same characters. I, it, it kind of works. If you just assume these are Ryan Reynolds' Alaskan parents from the proposal, these are Betty, this is Betty White's, uh, you know, Betty White's son and daughter in law. I think it adds something to the film. definitely. And Jane Fonda could just be the 80 for Brady lady as well. Like, just interconnect this unit. Let's fast X this and, and make it a cinematic universe forevermore. I can say, I liked it. I didn't love it. I loved the first one. It definitely doesn't have a needle drop quite as strong as Let's Marvin Gaye and Get It On by Megan Trainer And who was the, I forget who the dude was. You're the DJ, sir. Who did that with? Charlie Puth. Charlie Puth thank you Megan Trainer. I only remember Megan Trainer because she's cute uh, Megan Trainor and, and Charlie Puth also it's a catchy song but uh, yeah no, no needle drop quite like that although there were a lot of Italian pop song covers it's worth noting so I think you could hear one in the, in the clip there uh, like I say if you're a fan of the first one you'll like this you won't love it that was definitely the case for me but would I watch a third chapter I'm not gonna lie yes absolutely please make it immediately you've got my money
1: so, from what you said during there, it sounds like if you're a fifty-year-old female, you'd quite enjoy sitting down with a bottle of Lamborghini and your friends to watch this.
0: What fifty-year-olds do you know are drinking Lamborghini? What? Who are you hanging out? <laughs> I, <at? don't> <laughs> like, I don't know.
1: I don't know any. I
0: like. say, what's your mum Just throwing like? it out Jesus. There. <laughs> <laughs> even even well, my mum would be there. Even my mum would be there with a bottle of
1: backs. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you into a secret. One of my what? birthday presents from my mother, bearing in mind I am 43, yeah. was a bottle of Lambrini.
0: Oh my god. Fair play, fair play I sir. <laughs> well, if you, if I you would like it, read, but... you know, if you'd like to read. Yeah, if you'd like to read the next chapter of the book club for yourselves, you can happily find it in all multiplexes from today rated 12a. Like I guess I I I would see it. I would if you like the first one definitely go and see it.
1: Brilliant. All right. Well, we're moving on. Uh, Last movie to talk about. I'm really looking forward to hearing about this. Plan 75. And we'll see what Van thinks about that in just a second. Stay right where you are. Hello and welcome back. Our final movie to review on off screen then with Van Connor is Plan 75. I've read the synopsis to this. It looks great.
0: Yes, it's it's quite a concept for a movie. This one isn't it? Almost, almost sounds like a, 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 a Tory plan, doesn't it? It sounds like a solution for the cost of living crisis in a dystopian Britain, <laughs> doesn't it? Right. So, Plan Seventy Five. If you're wondering what we were describing, now Plan Seventy Five. Okay, Japanese film about a a, a fictional plan, number 75. The movie opens with uh, the suicide of a man who has opened fire with a, with a, a sniper scope on an old folks' home. He then takes his own life, and that's how we're introduced to Plan 75, which is a government initiative that has been brought in to address the issue of overpopulation, a lack of births and a surplus of OAPs is leading to a a, a cost of living crisis, just a general crisis uh, that needs some kind of remedy. So the government initiates Plan 75, which is effectively a state-sanctioned euthanasia scheme in which you can simply decide to end your life. And to incentivize you to do that, they actually give you a cash grant that you can either use then to pay for your funeral, or you can give it to your family, or you can enjoy your last days. And against the backdrop of this, because it sounds quite sensationalised, it is a cold, hard, sort of of slice-of-life drama, like an almost kitchen sink drama... Against this backdrop, we have a number of subplots with different characters. You have uh, one woman, who's, one older woman, who's struggling to struggles to get into the scheme initially, and then questions, you know, the you know the, 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 the questions, the morality of it. You have uh, an older gentleman who's going through the scheme as well, and who then reconnects with someone who actually works for the scheme, a younger uh, a younger worker for the actual schemes, like the the government administrator, who is in fact his estranged nephew. Who is then forced to question whether or not he, you know, in, con- in good conscience, wants his sort of more or less you know distanced uncle to go through with this, and starts looking into alternative options. It's really fascinating stuff and really, really well done. There's something. There's something. I thought of Gattaca, weirdly watching. I thought of Andrew. Uh, is Andrew Nichols? Andrew Nichols Gattaca from uh, '97. When i was watching this Gatica was uh, kind of a, had a similar sort of uh a class-like structure about it this however is one of those films that you is very palpable in it, it's it's cold hard drama you you just find yourself immersed within it and you do go along rompingly for the ride it's not a film you enjoy and we had this conversation after someone asked did you enjoy that one well i i i liked it i wouldn't say i enjoyed it i don't think it's a film you enjoy like, to enjoy it would probably make you a very sick person. i say I enjoyed the House of a Thousand Corpses or Human Centipede 2. and didn't enjoy them. I watched them and appreciated them for what they were, but I think if I said I enjoyed them, you'd find something very wrong with me. Uh, this is very much one of those, although not in the same way as either of those films, obviously. Um, the performances across the board, all great. Uh, the style of it, which I say is quite distant, quite cold. And it is that distance and it is that coldness that makes this work. Because I think if you... If you step any closer if, you, if you're any more if, the, if for instance the the physical presence of the camera were any more immersed in this if the pov of this story was you know slightly closer i think it would feel too sensationalized i think it would feel too ridiculous i think you'd find daftness in it and i think presented the way it has been gives it a, a level of, i don't know how to say a level of engagement that I think we wouldn't quite have been afforded with the alternative. Now it's um, <clears throat> it's first time direction, I think, from Chi Hayakawa. Chi Hayakawa, I think, so it's a first time feature. And for a first time feature, it's an absolute mind blow. Like if this is someone's first film, I don't even want to think what the fifth one's going to be. Because damn, this is really impressive and I know this actually had when we were saying earlier about Eight Mountains being submitted for uh, Italy's you know candidate for best international future this apparently has been submitted for Japan's and I can absolutely not only see it happening like getting the nomination next year. this is the kind of film where you think unless there's something like really game changing or Alfonso Cuaron's got a week off and nothing to do this is walking away with our Oscar next year like Quite clearly, unless quaron has got like a week off and like downtime, needs something to to do for an afternoon. But yeah, this is this is one I can absolutely see getting a lot of praise, like almost retro, retroactive praise, when we get to next year's Oscar season, and this comes up again. And yeah, it's absolutely one of those through and through.
1: One thing I would want to know, watching a movie like this, is what the hell was Plan One to seventy-four?
0: <laughs> yeah, what was what was Order sixty-six? Um, yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you mean with that. Uh, we do get. They I they they have got options in. They have uh, apparently explored umpteen other options, and the the opening scene is really harrowing. In particular, that that opening sequence of the. Uh, the, the, the shooting spree on the old folks' home, Yeah. That is really harrowing stuff—and it, it starts this off. You start this movie from a place of complete shock, and it—it it, it really only goes colder and colder from there. It's a, it's so it's, a, it's not a designed, very bleak drama.
1: It's not designed then to be this kind of amazing action-packed kind of movie. It's, it's oh, gotcha. much more about the starkness of Plan Seventy-Five. Yes.
0: About right, that, but okay. it's, a more, about the, it's a more about the startness of kind of navigating through a world in which this is the thing. It's noticeable they don't really question the logistics of it or anything like that. They don't really, they, say they don't delve into what could be the sillier aspects of it. This is played completely straight. And I don't think it would work anywhere near as well in any other context, as I say. Um, it's something we found ourselves we were having a discussion afterwards talking about what the inevitable English language remake is going to involve and I honestly hope there never ever is one because I just don't see it having the same resonance at all and I think the film's kind of perfect as it is it's a five star film in my book it's an absolutely brilliant movie but don't watch this if you're feeling low whatever you do because <laughs> it's going to be a bad day for you
1: Right. Okay. well, you can make your own mind up. Plan 75, which is in cinemas from today. Uh, Right. Next week, I know which one you really want to talk about, but we'll save that for the end. Um, We're going to look at Under the Fig Trees. I haven't even heard about this one.
0: Well, this is... Uh, apparently, this is a... I think is it's Israeli. I'm not sure if this is not Israeli. Um, but this is... I'm going to look this up. Hang on. It is in fact... Well, it is in Arabic. Oh, it's Tunisian. Okay, it is Tunisian and in Arabic. And is about the... I don't know. about a drama set during the summer harvest. So, okay. No, don't quite know what to expect from that one. But like I say, there are other things out next week. There's a documentary next week. And uh, I need to share the screener link for this with you because I think you'll enjoy this. This has Ooh, got a got touch on. of... Do you, do you remember years ago? Do you remember, do you remember uh, My Name is Dave Gorman? Or I am Dave Gorman? Dave Gorman did a thing years yeah. ago where he went went round the world meeting other Dave Gormans. Do you, yeah. do you remember that Yeah, one? I
1: remember it.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Someone has done a documentary. It's called The Other Fellow. The poster for this, the marketing campaign, involves a silhouette of a certain iconic tuxedo-clad super spy. I'm sure you can guess which. It therefore involves... A look at all the other men named James Bond. Brilliant. So, yeah, I'll send I'll send you the link for that one. We have also got the. Uh, this has been very divisive as well. Like people have loved this and they have hated it. Um, it is the third film from Ari Aster, the director of *Midsummer* and *Hereditary*. It stars Joaquin Phoenix and it's called *Bo Is Afraid*. It is three hours long. Sorry, it's two hours fifty-nine. Because I said that in front of the publicist. I said it's three hours long. He went, uh, uh, "Excuse me, no." It's two hours fifty nine. Like okay, fair play, fair play. Semantics. <laughs> um, I got to I got to see this on Monday night. I I had a twelve hour screening day on, on Monday, and this wow. was the end. This was this was the final three hours. Sorry, two hours fifty nine of it. Sorry, Zach. Um, but we get to talk about it next week, along with the much anticipated. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. They have adapted. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. For the screen. Um, I would say I'm, I'm. I'm really looking forward to this one. As long as, as well as, and you know what my heavy hitter is for next week? It's the return of the family. It's time. It's time to turn the NOS tank up. It's time to put the pedal down. Grip that yes. steering wheel. Get fast and get furious. Fast X is next week. The 11th movie technically 12th if we're counting Justin Lin's mom with uh, uh Kang Sung uh, Sung Kang sorry and uh, yeah Fast X is upon us I cannot wait Jason Momoa trying to murder the Fast family pour it in me oh my god I can't wait yeah I
1: am absolutely looking forward to that one that's definitely yep. on my list for next week Um but yeah loads to look forward to next week that's all we've got time for this week on off screen though of course
0: I've been Adam Ball I've been Van Connor and we shall return.